This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Hi. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Trying to brave this terrible weather. I don't know what it's like in LA, but it is raining up a storm up here. It's terrible. Pretty gloomy, and we're expected to get rain today, which I am a fan of because you don't get that rain often. So yeah, you don't get any. You don't get. You get hardly any rain. Although I'm thinking about moving to Southern California because I'm thinking I hear the weather is much nicer than it is here. Where are you? Here, uh, San Jose. San Jose. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a little colder, a little foggier. I like that kind of weather, but oh. I'm crazy. <laughs> are you originally from here, or are you? Uh, from Techn- out of state. Technically, I'm an army brat, uh, but I was born I was born in Southern California, but I moved away after I was three months old and I didn't grow up here. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Maybe you're technically, technically actually not a Cal- uh, native Californian, even though you, you kind of are. I, I, yeah, I, let's see, bio, I'm a biological Californian. <laughs> <laughs> California but, was a country, you'd be a, you would have been a citizen citizen of california right yeah exactly exactly i wish it was a country can we make that happen (laughs) (laughs) who knows it it still may happen who knows it's entirely possible baja canada here we come (laughs) i had a i had a friend of mine back in 2016 saying that's it california is going to secede and i'm like okay hasn't happened yet but maybe we're on the way we're on the way (laughs) There, there were some days where i certainly wished for it and uh maybe i will again I don't know. We're kind I, of self-sustaining. Uh, we are pretty self-sustaining, so we could. We could yeah. conceivably succeed. I feel like if we could just break off um, Washington and Oregon and just become, you know, yeah, Baja Canada. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that. They're, they're, you've heard of Pacifica, right? Yeah. The state where they're thinking about like BC all the way down to, uh, you know, Baja California and then just making yeah. it one, one long country, like it. Peru or something like that. I, I'd be I'd be up for that. Totally be up for that. <laughs> awesome. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your 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 organization, and what you're passionate about? Oh gosh. Oh, I didn't even notice. We're already recording. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we just jumped like right in. Hot. You know, I'm coming in hot. <laughs> okay. Um, a little bit about myself. Well, as I told you, I'm an army brat, and I think that actually was uh, foundational to shaping my personality because. I went to a different school every single year until seventh grade. And so that made me really comfortable with change. And that has served me very well, well as an adult and in my career. Um, I think comfort with change is, is, yeah, it's been very, very helpful. Um, my, my current role, I'm the director of impact innovation at Philosophy. That's Philosophy with an I, I love the name of that company, by the way. Because I am a philosophy major. Oh, 
Well, then you might be familiar with the phrase, all work is an act of philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Absolutely. That was the, for the, the name of the company. And it resonated really strongly with me. I spent a long time uh, in advertising and in um, large scale software systems before earlier in my career. Uh, I worked at uh, Huge and Crispin Porter and Bogusky uh, doing all manner of digital media campaigns and digital mm -hmm. marketing websites and sometimes product development, but more often it was media uh, and marketing focused. And when I left that, I started my own company, it was a fashion tech startup focused on non-toxic nail designs. Nice. Yeah. Something that we need. Something that we need. So every time well, I go into every time I go into one of those places, I feel like I'm going to keel over. Well, you know, yeah, actually, the health risks to the employees is is pretty substantial. But also, there was a study in 2015 from Duke University that showed that there were endocrine disruptors leaching into women's bodies through their fingernails that were disrupting their fertility, disrupting their immunohealth. Uh, and when you think about the fact that we market nail polish to girls as young as five, mm. it, uh, it, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> so yeah. I thought I, I want to give people a way to be very creative with their nail designs without the health implications or all the packaging issues, you know, the, the, all the bottles that, that go into landfills filled with chemicals. Yeah. So that was fun. I did that for five years. And then uh, we had an exit in 2019 and I started consulting for philosophy and sort of fell in love with the organization. It's a really unique place. Um, we've actually won uh, best workplace two years in a row. Nice. And yeah, it's, it's an incredible place to work. Um, there's a very flat hierarchy and the two founders are still very much um, crafts people who are involved in evolving the team's good, you know, best practices. And uh, they also just have really, really good energy that trickles down through the, through the corporation. And especially now when everything's remote, being able to foster a culture where people feel that can be authentic and, and be their real selves. I think it's, it's kind of a, an amazing feat to pull off and so far so good. Yeah. yeah, it's really tough to to be inclusive when you're like on the other side of a screen. Right? It's <laughs> well, it's it's also hard. I mean, just to to stay focused. I mean, I find myself I've got this monitor and another monitor, so I've got a lot of things happening, and you know this monitor. So I've got all these different pings and little windows popping up, and oh, I got to make sure I don't forget this. So like the multitasking and the lack of focus right now is like um, something that I'm presently trying to work on. I'm, I'm doing um, Pomodoro techniques where I'll do like a little 20 minute chunks of something. Just yeah, I'm actually doing that myself. Oh. <laughs> it's not working too well though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I got this, uh, um, it's a plugin to Chrome called uh, Marinara. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I started at 20 and then I, I kept changing it. And then I'm like, okay, this isn't working for me. And then sometimes I'm in the middle of a podcast and it pops up and I'm like, oh, I got to turn that off. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's my marinara sauce boiling in the background. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I wish it were. <laughs> at least it would smell good. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, to answer your question, because I kind of went way around about my uh, around my ass to get to my elbow. Um, I am passionate about making things better. I really like working on systems and services and making them so that people don't go crazy. And right now you can see how so many systems and services that we rely on have a lot of explaining to do and need to be, oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity for improvement. So um, I'm, I'm happy to be putting my passion towards that. Oh, there's an absolute huge disconnect between, between these things. I mean, I, I wrote a blog post about this, like technology products should just work, just work, right? I remember when I, I, I bought my first smart bulb and it took me like 20 minutes to like <laughs> 20 minutes to figure it out. And then every time the power goes out, I had to reconfigure it again. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I should be able to take it out of the box, screw it in and be done. Yeah. You know, it should like ping my phone and say, hey, I'm set up, you know, which network do you want me to connect to? Yada, yada. And none of that happens. It's like, you've got to, you got to be a techie to be able to figure these things out and they should be figure outable. I mean, it's technology. We just need to do that, go that extra mile to just make it happen by itself. Well, I think that's one of the things about product design. It's not just designing the product, it's designing the ecosystem in which the product lives and all of the different communication touch points that, that go along with it, especially when you're creating a product that is fairly new or novel. So like, you know, a smart light bulb, you don't want to have to buy, you know, the smart light bulb book for dummies <laughs> in order to plug in a damn light bulb. Uh, but, but, you know, the unboxing, I think, you know, Apple has been historically so good at that making making the box feel simple so you don't feel overwhelmed when you open it. I actually just had this experience with a uh, soda stream which everybody raves about and I like sparkling water and we got soda streams as our uh, holiday gift this year. And I plugged mine in and the canister didn't screw the way that it showed in the in the instructions so I had to call for the thing. Then they tell me how to screw it in but it still isn't working. So then they sent me another canister and a flavor to like make up for the bad experience so far, but I plugged it in and you know, it carbonated, but I remember thinking it's not that carbonated. And then when I first pressed the button, it like actually exploded all over me because there was nothing oh, no. in it. And I was just like, Ooh, how does everybody love this product? I'm really frustrated right now. Um, yeah, the jury's still out on the soda stream, but I think okay. that the, the the design of product communication is so crucial, especially when you're designing something that's really, really a new experience for people holding their hands. Yeah, yeah. They feel smart and empowered for, for doing this new cool thing rather than yeah. frustrated and, oh, Jesus, I'll just drink tap water. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm a, and I'm a big proponent of the DIFM as opposed to DIY because it seems everybody there's so many companies who are like, well, if we just gave their customers more tools so they could do it themselves, then they'd be happy. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of, did you ever, do you have Apple Card? I don't. Okay, so when Apple Card first came out, I wanted to I wanted to try it out to see how it would work. And it was so effortless. You just go on your you go on your app and you apply for it. It shows up and then all you do is you take it out and you tap it against your phone or you bring it close to your phone and it's activated and it's done. And after that, I barely use it because you don't get as many points on the card, the physical card, but it was the most amazing experience. 
And I'm thinking, why can't all tech products be like this? I mean, they, they can be. It's just that we, we don't seem to go the extra mile. And I don't know what I don't know what's stopping us. Well, it's you know, it's hard. And a lot of times uh, designers will get paid to create a product, but not paid to spend the time and energy on all of the other touch points that create that product experience. Um, or a company, you know, a, a struggling startup just won't have the energy to focus on it. It's not that they don't want to, but there's so many fish to fry. They're getting their patent and they're trying to raise money. And it's it's a challenge. Doing doing really good product work is is hard and it takes a lot of time and thoughtfulness to get it right and a lot of iteration. And it's it's about commitment to that. And then also, you know, the collaboration that's required. You know, if you think about like a government uh, website, which, you know, many of them are not helpful. Very tactful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's so many different organizations that have to share information, so many competing voices. And then maybe there's like a person who's in charge of synthesizing all of that and trying to make sense of it. That person might not even be a designer, they might be a policy agent or, you know, an administrative assistant. And they're not even, you know, technically a designer. So then them having to do all that information architecture and also synthesizing it down so it's digestible for a normal non-government person, it's a, it's a tremendous job. And with so many things, I think, shifting to this kind of always remote world, we're going to need to get really, really much better at uh, the systems that we have in place for you know, being a citizen, whatever that means, like your DMV mm -hmm. stuff, paying your taxes, all, all of your citizenly duties, and then also your healthcare, all of that needs to be rethought. As we're seeing now, the breakdown of both of those at the same time can be real painful and potentially be a contributing factor in, you know, the collapse of a country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm seeing that it's kind of like you, you can look at it two ways. I mean, I'm kind of like on the one hand, I'm hating it, but on the other hand, I'm loving it because the disruption is forcing all this change on people. And it's it, it's almost get, gets me to the point where, you know, everyone talks about being innovative and changing and doing all these new things, but unless something serious happens to disrupt them into doing it, then it never happens. And this is this is something serious. It's pushing people into, into disrupting themselves. And it's it's a good thing. And it might end up being a good thing in the end for, for everybody. Absolutely. I think, you know, there's the old saying, of course, mother is the necessity is the mother of innovation. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's invention. I'm bastardizing yeah. that quote, but you get my point. Yeah. I think about it in terms of like, you know, it's a mirror to what happens in people's health. You know, you'll have like a young, healthy person who will uh, get diagnosed with cancer. And suddenly they realize, oh, well, you know, I'm not overweight and I, I, you know, I'm not drinking every day, but I'm not necessarily healthy. And then they go on this journey of, of self-discovery that leads them to become, you know, more physically active and change their diet to actually be healthy and cut out sugar and caffeine and all the other stuff that they were unconsciously putting their body because they didn't see an effect. Uh, so I think right now we have, we are having a health crisis, literally mm -hmm. figuratively, that's going to precipitate a ton, hopefully of positive change 
or it's going to kill us, literally going right. to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe either one. Yeah. But I mean, the, the fact that the, it's, the, the thing that's driving me crazy, though, is that if people seem to only change when there's disruption, it's almost like you should, you should not just invite it, but you should sort of create it. You know, let's say never uh, let a crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should create crises to drive people into disruption. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of just organically having crises. <laughs> I don't know if there needs to be a, a crisis uh, instigation machine. And, and right. truthfully, I guess maybe better put is there are so many crisis instigation machines already out there. Right. So I don't, I don't, don't need know. any more. Yeah. It's just what we do with them, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how have you been innovating through this crisis? That is a great question. Well, I can tell you what uh, philosophy has been doing uh, for clients. Um, mm-hmm. We have a, a methodology that we call experiment-driven design. And that's, uh, it's, it's kind of a unique approach. And I'm going to describe it and it sounds, it's going to sound really simple, but what we do is we take like a large ambitious idea and we'll break it down to test different pieces of it. Now that's not a new thing, but what we do is we try to target what the most risky assumption is in, mm-hmm. in the list, in the thing list of things that we could do. So I'll give you like a simple, simple example. Um, you know, a company comes to us and says, Oh, we want to build a website to, uh, get people to brush their teeth with charcoal. None of this is a real company that we're working with. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it needs to have really like easy, you know, checkout so that when they want to buy, that's really easy. You know, can, can you, can you comp this out for us? You know, uh, and we'll say, sure. And they'll say, okay, we want this really like slick checkout. And we'll say, you know, the checkout isn't really the part that you got to worry about. It's people are going to want to brush their teeth with this new thing. You've got, you know, a hundred years of marketing teaching people that the most effective thing is something that comes out of a tube, preferably something that's got the word whitening in it or fluoride in it, maybe. Uh, And this stuff doesn't come out of a tube. And when you're brushing your teeth, it doesn't make them sparkly white. So changing people's minds about that is going to be the risky assumption that we have to kind of kick the tires on first. So we'll do really lo-fi tests early on, um, sometimes like paper prototypes um, or demand tests with like paid, you know, fake pages that land to nowhere to just see who's clicking on them. And when we are able to do those early lo-fi tests, um, you know, we, we can fail fast uh, on the little things so that we don't fail, you know, spectacularly on the big thing. Uh, and it, it makes a huge difference. It allows us to move really quickly and uh, it has helped us to help our customers innovate. That's what we've been doing with our, our clients. And especially right now when, you know, over the past year, there's been so much budget uncertainty for a lot of companies, being able to validate ideas in a really affor- fast, affordable way so that they can make calculated bets and move forward with more certainty and clarity has been tremendously valuable. That's probably one of the most valuable things that we offer clients. Um, Internally, we've been innovating with uh, new ways of collaboration because previously we would get together and a lot of time was spent around whiteboards with post-its. So we've been uh, experimenting with different tools to allow for um, 
collaboration. Um, some of them are tools that we're you know, using from other entities like uh, uh, Mural or Miro, uh, which are kind of like fancy whiteboard systems where a bunch of people can get together and put squares and arrows and start mapping something out. Um, we also created some of, of the tools that uh, we find most useful. So even though Mural has a, a, a ability to dot vote on certain things, we found the interface was really overwhelming, especially for clients who are like, oh, I've never used this before. And then if you get too many people on a board, suddenly the lines go all kablooey. Oh, yeah. We just need a bit a way, a simple way to allow people to write things on a post-it and stick them up on a wall so we can like dot vote on post-its and have a conversation. So we created one, a tool called uh, Dot Voter. It's actually free. Um, so nice. people can, I'll, I'll share it with you after this in case people want to check it out. Um, so it's a, a free tool that lets people create stickies. And then the, the creator of the sticky board, you know, can say, uh, let's, talk about things that went well in this project and everybody can make a, a sticky or a post-it, a virtual post-it for one idea of something that went well. And then everybody can see after private ideation, everybody can see what everybody else wrote and then everybody gets a vote and you can you know, give people two votes or five votes or however many, and then those get moved up to the top so you can facilitate a conversation. Super simple, real easy for clients. That is a fantastic idea. And I will use that in my next ideation session on Monday. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. We need something like that. It's impossible. I mean, I've had a number of ideation sessions over the last little while and all the tools are overbuilt. So yeah. overbuilt. You just need something super, super simple. And yeah. nobody has anything like that. So I'm definitely going to be using that. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I hope it uh, provides fruitful discussion for you. Uh, yeah, so so that's what we've been doing, like on like internal and towards in terms of like making ourselves, you know, better able to collaborate and be productive. And then on the human side of things, um, we've been experimenting with daily standups in like the whole company, and then we have like um, daily standup pods that will break. So on Monday and Friday, it's everybody, and then in the middle of the week, it's just like smaller groupings, so you can have a little bit more intimate conversations. Um, we have new Slack channels that opened up for meme of the week, DJ, <laughs> we've got like new ways to be together, even though we can't physically be together. And uh, we, you know, play games, we actually do movie night. So it, it's really important to us to continue fostering communication and like real sense of community and between the team, because if you get along really fabulously with your teammates, you're probably going to do better work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a lot of companies have just basically forgotten about that part of things. They've just said, you know, well, we, you know, we got to be home and, you know, get online for meetings and that's it, you know, and then you've got your solitary work, but you know, the, the collaborative aspect has just disappeared and all communications is now intentional. You have to, you know, make that connection. You can't just have serendipitous, you know, conversations anymore. That's, those are gone. And, and that's the thing. It's like we, we've worked, we're, we're working out ways to trigger spontaneous conversations. And I find myself, I'm calling more of my colleagues through Slack rather than slacking them something, I just call them really quick, just so I can have a little bit of face-to-face -face interaction like this. Um, and it makes a huge difference because not only, you know, does the team get along better and have a, like an actual rapport, you know, I can ask a person about how their day was. And if somebody's like maybe snippy in a meeting, instead of, taking umbrage and maybe like 
having a ripple effect that, you know, ruins my day, I can back channel them and be like, Hey, are you okay? Like, because I know you and I like you and you normally wouldn't act that way. You're my friend. Um, so it, it's, it's proven to be really helpful. And it's also been great for our clients. Uh, we, we were working with a, a large media company and one of the reasons they said they immediately, as soon as our engagement was done, they signed up for another engagement and they said, nice. we love the, the weekly happy hours with you guys, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which were like happy hours slash retro, but you know, a cocktail, you know, we need to be able to still get together and have a beer after work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you do that? Well, Absolutely. you do it. That's, oh, that's totally essential. Yeah, but companies seem to have just said, yeah, you know, it's not happening anymore. But I mean, it's essential to keep that connection going. Yeah, it's really important. You, if you culture is like a garden, software is like a garden, and any garden that's left un, unattended is just going to get overgrown with weeds. Yeah, but I love that example that you gave because if you think about it, I mean, some of that stuff wouldn't even work in real life, right? I mean, you'd have to you know, it'd be really awkward to do stuff like that, but you're that's actually right. describing an experience that's better than in person. And I think that's what we have to, we have to look for. Sorry. Which ones could you not do in real life? No, I mean, if you like, if you have to surreptitiously pull somebody over to the side and say, you know, hey, yeah. if you think about it, you know, you have a back channel going on at the same time as the meeting's happening. Right. Wow. So, and that's the thing I've been, I was always talking about is that, so I do some work with that for the IFTF and you're familiar with those uh, suitable technology beam robots where, you know, it's like on a, on a stand and you can drive around and, 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 and they were always trying to make the interface uh, as close to human as possible. So they, you know, they figured they, they made it the height of a typical person and you made the size of the screen, typical, typical, typical. And I'm like, you know, you guys are doing it all wrong. You have to go beyond that. You have to re leverage the technology to make it a better experience than being in person. So I think some of the stuff that you're talking about is that is doing just that is that you can have these sort of simultaneous back channel communications in chat or whatever at the same time as the meeting is going on and deal with these issues you know simultaneously instead of having to wait till afterwards where you can pull them aside and and do whatever so i think you know some of this some of the stuff that a re remote actually facilitates is actually better than being in person God, you just gave me flashbacks of when I was working uh, at an agency and we were working on a wall, a robot for the creative wall. So that like if a person was in the New York office and the creative teams were working in the Boulder office, that the robot could go and scan the wall and like be the same height. So you could have a conversation with the creative director <laughs> in another office. And, it was and as you were saying that, I was like, God, it would have been better if it had been like, like a fly on the wall, like a spy camera across the wall that could take a picture of the whole thing, yeah. give me a speeded up view of who's at the wall so I can actually see all that and then zoom into different parts of it at any given time. And then it would have been way better than a dumb, uh, you know, robot version of me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah this is exactly. And I think that's what happens is that a lot of times we stop at we need to make this as good as in real life, but it's like, no, no, no keep going, keep going, make it better, yeah. make it better. Yeah, I think parity with with physical world is too often the goal, and uh, yeah, we need to set we need to set higher 
benchmarks for ourselves. Yeah. Well, I love the thing you said at the very beginning where you said you're an army brat and you, you moved around a lot. You made you comfortable with change. And I'm thinking that would be a great thing for everybody. Maybe we should force everybody to move around a lot and to make them more comfortable with change. Yeah. I mean, you find the people who are in that, who were grew up like that are actually more flexible and, and innovative. Absolutely. Well, I don't know about innovative, but I feel like, um, you know, there's a certain depression I think that people have when things that they get used to change and there is a, there is a strange attachment people have to, you know, getting something good and holding on to it. I mean, like you think about marriage till death do us part. I'm going to marry you as you are. And I really don't want you to change that much. I like who this is, but like, especially if you get married in your twenties, like, yeah. come on, that, that person's going to change a lot. And so are you. Yeah. And when you think about like the divorce rate being as high as it is, I think it's because people get very attached to locking something in and wanting that thing to stay forever. And nothing in this world is built to last forever, including the world. This planet's yeah. not lasting forever. The yeah. galaxy won't last forever. Eventually we're going to get sucked up into the black hole. Like entropy. The, the, yeah. So, so about entropy. <laughs> when you, when you, when you can embrace change, which sounds very cliche, but when you can actually like understand that the, the only constant should be change, uh, it, it allows you to, it's kind of like a Buddhist thing. You, you can suddenly start to be um, non-grasping, non-attaching, not done to say that you don't care, but understanding that this is, this is all things are, you know, impermanent and that's beautiful. Yep. And, and yep. you can also design for that impermanence. In a, in a more kind of thoughtful way. Right now, I think we design for we design in, for impermanence in a kind of nefarious intentionality where we're actually trying to design a way to get you to buy the next iteration. But what's, yep. what's a better way that we can serve people that thinks about long, the longevity and the unintended consequences of having to put more stuff into the world? Um, and is there a better way to create a lifelong customer without creating a lifelong garbage trail behind them. Right, right. Well, that's the problem with any kind of product, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're always looking at that, like how do, how do you, how do you balance, you know, not creating too much with, with profitability, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you balance these things out? Well, I think, you know, Netflix is interesting because um, it shifted away from a brick and mortar store that relied on the creation of physical medium uh, to a system where now there is no physical medium and I have access to all of this in perpetuity. And so I'm just a, I'm a subscriber, but like my landfill, my landfill now has gone down because I'm not buying DVDs anymore or yep. VHS, perish the thought. <laughs> well, I was thinking that, so you saw, you must've seen that article that said there's more human stuff created now than like the, the weight of the planet. So I'm, I'm a big believer in reuse, because if you think about it, everything that we have, everything that we buy new, pro there's probably a slightly used version that no one, that someone else out there is not using anymore. And if we could just connect you to that slightly used version or even more used version or whatever of that thing, then we could really go a long way to reducing the amount of extra stuff that we create for no reason. There, it's, a, it's not a new idea. I think 
there are people who are scratching at making that happen in a lot of different frontiers. There was a, a, a really amazing startup here in LA uh, by a woman named uh, Mickey Reynolds uh, called Neighbor Goods. And the mm-hmm. idea was that you could put up you know, on Neighbor Goods, I have a lawnmower. And then everybody on the block could just borrow your lawnmower and nobody yep. else would have to buy a lawnmower. Why do we all need to have a lawnmower? I don't even have a garage to put a lawnmower in, but I do need a lawnmower from time to time. Mm -hmm. So I I love the idea of of, uh, access and sharing, a sharing economy and systems that are built around access rather than acquisition. But- We have, I think we have too much, we have too much as a culture, too much invested in ownership. Yeah. Right. We have, we have so much invested in ownership as opposed to just use or sharing. Yeah. But I think, I think that that's changing. I think the idea of ownership, uh, which used to be the goal in a lot of fronts, you know, I want to own a car. I want to own, you know, a impressive looking bookshelf with books that t- show everybody how smart I am. I want to not, not to denigrate your impressive looking bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> I have more impressive looking bookshelves on the other side. I like um, but you know, like, you know, we, I remember like back in the day, you'd have like a CD case. And when somebody came over that you were dating, it was like, let me look at your CD case to find out if you're cool enough to date, you know, that was how you signaled who you were. And, uh, it's, it's interesting because now I've gotten rid of, I have like some design books that I've kept as reference, uh, but they're not in a big fancy bookshelf. Most of the books that I read now are digital and, mm-hmm. I, I buy no CDs, I buy no DVDs, and I've actually stopped buying clothing. Um, about two years ago, a bunch of girlfriends and I decided we to start a swap sisters group. And every six months we clear out our closets, we get together, this is before the pandemic, obviously. Um, and you can tell that I haven't had new clothes in a while because I'm just wearing like cut off t-shirts these days. <laughs> uh, but we would get together every six months and just dump all of the clothes in the middle of the room and go shopping. And I have not bought new clothes in about two and a half years because of that. It's amazing. And I mean, some of the stuff is brand new because, you know, the consumer culture is so ingrained into us, especially here in America. A lot of us had things that were sitting in our closet that were either barely worn or some of them still even had the tag on them. Like, oh, I bought yep. this dress to wear to a luncheon that I ended up wearing something else because I felt fat that day. Okay, I'll take it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's oh, no, my- I'm, a, I'm a huge leverager. I, I use libraries, I download books, I, I listen to Audible. And then if I want to buy stuff, if I need anything, I just go to, I go to uh, you know, Savers or Goodwill or someplace like that. Because some of these things, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a book that's been slightly used. So, and people look at you like, what's wrong with you, man? Are you like a hobo? <laughs> no, I think I, we, we need to start deprogramming ourselves to be so focused on stuff and newness and start to appreciate things that, have a little bit of patina of use um, mm-hmm. um, and valuing valuing things that stick around. And if, if something, there's like an old shaker saying like, if something's worth making, never hesitate to make it useful. And if you can make it useful, don't hesitate to make it beautiful. Right. These are the guys that make the rocking chairs that stick around for like two or 300 years, the beautiful mm-hmm. wooden rocking chairs. I love that. I, I, that's the kind of stuff I want in my home. 
and I well, don't want other we're, stuff. We're, always like that. Other. We're, we're Americans always like that, or did we just become like that recently? I mean, I think we weren't always like that. But I mean, when we say what America, what were Americans always like? We haven't been around that long. We we've been yeah. only around for like 250 years. So mm. what Americans are is new and evolving and. Unfortunately, I think, you know, in the last century, we had an explosion of like, you know, the, the, the creation of plastic and then the creation of factory processes and the, the rise of like robotics and mechanics, suddenly we could make more stuff. And so we needed a way to make profit off of that stuff. And so we trained gen a whole generation of people to think that these, these things were a marker that you'd made it. And now it's interesting because especially right now we have so many people struggling and not actually realizing that they're in poverty because they're still in a home, you know, maybe they're renting an apartment. Um, they can still afford to go and buy grocery shop, go grocery shopping. And I, I have a friend who was in the 99 cent store the other day. I don't know if 99 cent store is something across the country, but in California, oh, yeah, everyone has them. <laughs> okay. Uh, in California, the 99 cent stores also have grocery departments and organic, sometimes organic produce. Um, really? so, yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, so they can be a great place to shop, but in addition to, you know, buying eggs and blueberries and milk, uh, you can buy junky toys, lots and lots mm. of junky stuff. And um, my friend was like, my, my daughter doesn't know that we're like on the, on the edge of like being homeless because she thinks we're rich because every time we go to go grocery shopping, which is at the 99 store, she can, I, I let her buy a toy for a dollar. And so she has right. no idea that we're in poverty. And it reminds me of myself growing up as a military kid, we were definitely working poor and I had no clue because in America, it's easy to fake a, some kind of middle-class existence. And unfortunately, a lot of people have been tricked into thinking that they're middle-class when they're not. They're, they're actually economically the working poor and they're voting against their best economic interests because they've been lied to about where they sit. But what is truth? What is truth? Oh my gosh, what is truth? <laughs> I actually, I just wrote a piece on Medium uh, about fake news because especially after the, the insurrection on January 6th or insurrection attempt on January 6th, I became really like, I, I've got to put something out there that helps people unpack their bias and start to actually get to what is true. Um, so I, I posted an, a, a, a piece that talks about the media bias chart uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's in its mm -hmm. sixth iteration and it shows you where, you know, news sites like CNN fall versus a site like Breitbart News. And you can see how skewed your perspective, your perspective is. Even if you think that you're in the center, you might find you're actually off to one of the sides. Yep. And in that, I link to a bunch of fact checker uh, sites to help people get to what real objective facts are. And uh, I also uh, linked to a thing that I just discovered last week, which I'm in love with called ground.news. Mm -hmm. And it's so refreshing. You can go to it and subscribe to this thing called the blind spot feed. And it shows you a story that's coming up that's getting a lot of traction and widely reported for right-wing media that the left isn't seeing and vice versa. So it, it's a way for people who are polarized to start seeing what's in their blind spot. I love it. 
Yeah, we absolutely do need that because if you think, if you ask me, it's social media, it's Facebook and Twitter and all these social media players have created this divisive atmosphere where, you know, everyone's in their own little bubble and they just get fed the same stuff over and over again. And, they, and they're just never, these bubbles are never burst. I agree. I agree that social media is a big problem, but I also, and as I mentioned in the post, the problem is also us we have built-in confirmation bias. And so when a person posts something that you agree with, you are way more likely to recall facts about that story. You're way more likely to share it. So it's our own confirmation bias that's allowed social media to become the echo chamber that it is. Kind of like, you know, McDonald's doesn't make people have obesity. It's people's desire for fat and sugar that McDonald's yeah. solves. It's two sides of the same point. We are half the problem. And we can't solve it by just telling social media to stop being the way it is. We have to yeah. stop being the way we are. Yeah. And social media is just an accelerant, basically. Right. We have to recognize our own complicitness in this and work actively against our own inherent natural biases. Yeah. That's why I have this like campaign to say people, did you, when people share stuff with me, I'll say, did you read that before you shared it? Did you actually understand it before you shared it? Did you, did you, did you dig into it? And they're not designed for that. It's designed for quick sharing, right? Just yeah. read the, read the headline and share. And it's like, no, 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 don't do that. You're, you're complicit in spreading this. If you don't dig into it yourself, like you as a person should be a little more thoughtful about what you spread. Yeah. Well, Here's hoping all of us, myself included, can be more thoughtful in 2021 because we did a hell of a job in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope, right? So speaking of speaking of the future, let's talk 2031. Where do you think things are going to be 10 years out? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can talk about what I hope, what I hope for. I hope for more objectivity and critical thinking. I hope that we have been able to introduce objectivity and critical thinking into school curriculums so that kids can start gaining knowledge and experience to make sense of all these divergent perspectives and recognize you know, a measurable, repeatable reality of something like gravity or you know, the earth being yeah. round, things that are measurable and provable um, and shouldn't be controversial at all. And then yeah. also understand the nuance of language and how the words that we choose can shape perspective and perception. So number one, I hope, I hope we're able to fix some of our um, objectivity and critical thinking. In terms of design, I hope that we're in a place where um, we have been able to become more ethical about the things that we create. I think that um, a lot of designers fall victim to, you know, wanting to create something that's good for humanity. But then over time, I mean, you know, things we've seen this over and over, something will slip into being more about profit. And we need to, we need to really encourage people to think more critically about their creative work and um, take, a, take a hard look at what are some of the things that can happen if this gets abused. So, so I'm, I'm hoping that we um, are a little bit more ethical. And then finally, I hope that we are designing um, more systems and servi services 
with the health of humanity in mind. And I mean that, you know, right now we talked about all the different services that are kind of broken. Um, and we're, we're, we're living in a bunch of broken systems right now, but it's often the people who are most vulnerable, um, people of color and people in uh, areas of economic dysfunction uh, that are suffering the most as a result of, of those systems being badly designed. So I, I'm hopeful that we're able to use our, our better angels to, mm -hmm. to start to work our way away from designing in that fashion. But that's going to take yep. a lot of work, a lot of collaboration, and a lot of commitment from people who right now are still spoiling for a fight. <laughs> um, so we're going to, we have a lot of meditating <laughs> to do and yep. a lot of meditating to get there. Yeah. No, we all need to, it's, it's, it, it's like, why can't we all look towards building things that will help humans flourish, no matter who they are. I mean, why do we always have to have this, you know, us versus them mentality? I mean, we're all human beings. We should be able to help each other. We should be able to lift each other up. And it's just there's so much tearing down happening that we, we got to turn that around. In a hundred years, I'm hopeful that uh, work is more of a universal pursuit of creativity and happiness. Because a lot of the things that we think of as work won't need to be done by humans anymore. Um, many of the things that are current careers and professions will be handled by robots. And I don't just mean menial jobs. I mean like creative work as well. Like mm -hmm. I, I've seen incredible ad campaigns designed by artificial intelligence. I've wow. seen music created by artificial intelligence. I've seen, uh, you know, homes designed by artificial intelligence. So there's a lot of creative work that could be done by, by robot overlords. And maybe in a hundred years, it's gonna be about figuring out how do we how do we create healthy, happy humans that just get to be. Yeah. Do you ever, uh, do you read science fiction? I love it. Do you know uh, Ian Banks and the culture series? No. Oh, oh, you gotta, you gotta read this because okay. He, it's a it's a far future post scarcity society where you know all of that stuff's been figured out and all we do is look for self actualization like that's it that's all that's that's what everybody does and the only tension in the books is between this perfect human society and other societies that sort of haven't they're not quite as advanced yet so that's where some of the tension lies between the books but the the society itself the culture society is so post scarcity that basically all they're doing is worrying about you know what am i going to do next how am i going to improve myself next what how how, how can i flourish next and and I it's so <laughs> optimistic it's so optimistic and it, it, it's great i love it it's like all that stuff's been all the hate and divisiveness have just, just disappeared and people just you know want to want to just be better be better humans, basically. Oh man, sounds like it's right up my alley. I want to be a better. Well, human. I'll send you links to it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! This has been fantastic. Well, I love I love talking with you. So, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, and first of all, you you're gonna give me the links to uh, this tool, right? Because I'm definitely gonna use it on Monday. Yeah, but if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, uh, the best way to reach me is probably on Twitter. I'm just at Angel. Nice. You got that. <laughs> You got that handle? I, I applaud you. This is this is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to say hello. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. 
Um, people can email me at, at philosophy. It's just angel at philosophy dot is, but uh, I'm on Twitter at angel. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much, Chris. Of course. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks. Bye.